It's time for the What in the Podcast. Welcome to the What in the Podcast with your hosts, Kent Whittington and Adriana Camito and Tracy Lynn Hernandez. Hello and welcome to the What in the Podcast. I'm your host, Kent Whittington. Along with me tonight is my wife, Adriana. Say hi, dear. Hi, dear. Yeah, I knew you'd do that. (laughs) (laughs) Tracy's not with us tonight. She had a little uh, mishap at home. Something about Kitty Cat 500 and a broken modem, a router. Router. Basically, her Wi-Fi is down. Something, yeah, um, something is wrong. Something and is we're wrong. We're just gonna send good thoughts out to her and. <laughs> and because of this, we really didn't have, and and our, we had some plans. They kind of fell through ourselves, but we didn't want to leave you hanging. We we almost went dark tonight, but decided we can't. Completely, completely go dark. Go dark. Um, so what we've done is created a short episode involving heart. involving a series of shorts that we want to put on for eventually when we do our Patreon episodes so that you can get a taste of what our shorts are actually going to be like. Um, I've put on a couple tonight. Adri's done a couple. We even have a special one from our good friend Aaron Montgomery. She uh, dialed one in for us tonight as well. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, before we get started, I'm going to do my little housekeeping bid. Um, just want to say hi to Jerry and Tracy at Hillbilly Horror Stories, our spiritual pod parents, as I should have been calling them all this time. Grown. Yeah, grown, but still, what you going to do? But anyway, um, what else? We anything else we needed to talk about? Not that I can think of now. I know we've had some problems here. Uh, one of our biggest issues here has been oh, uh, sound quality. Sound quality. Uh, that was another reason we were going to go dark tonight because we wanted to get our sound editors working and up and running and hopefully bring you a decent show next week. Um, we'll continue to work on the problem until next week's episode. Uh, hopefully we'll have it fixed by then. Yep. Well, one of the beauty, at least better. <laughs> yep. Well, one of the beauties about use, about doing the shorts tonight is we were able to record off the Anchor app. Um, which actually allowed us to do it just from our phones. No computers, no mics, nothing like that. And the sound quality is actually pretty darn good, <laughs> as you'll hear. As he'll toot his own horn here, yeah. And yours. No, I didn't toot my horn. Well, I'll toot your horn. You actually slowed down and told dirty. stories, you know. <laughs> that sounds dirty. You were able to tell your stories, and they were nice and clear. They were very well done, as you'll hear tonight, folks. Hope you enjoy them. Hi, I'm Adriana Camito, and welcome to What in the Shorts. Uh, we're talking, taking short snippets this this week. Uh, I'm talking about the Emperor of San Francisco. Okay.
Okay, listeners, I'm going to talk about an author first. One of my favorites, his name is Christopher Moore. He's written so many books. A lot of them are tongue-in-cheek, very entertaining. Uh, He has a character that runs in a number of his series, it kind of goes together, called The Emperor of San Francisco. And he has two minions, which are two dogs, a golden retriever named Lazarus and a Boston Terrier named Bummer. He's a homeless man that runs around San Francisco and everybody knows him. Um... Office workers give him and the dogs food or money and check on him a lot. The cops even give him some leeway in the book, um, in the books that I've read that he's in. He's not just in the uh, uh, Bloodsucking Fiends, A Love Story is the first book I ever read by Moore, and I, I he's written others in different orders. Um, I suggest you read him. He's very good, very entertaining. Um, but the emperor is the emperor of San Francisco. He also has a treaty with the emperor of Oakland, which is mentioned. But I do believe the emperor of San Francisco is is um, based on an actual person in the 1800s. Um, and I'll get into that right now. Most Americans assume the Declaration of Independence did away with the rule of kings on these shores. Perhaps so, but less than a century after the Declaration was signed... Uh, and the War of Independence won, an English immigrant named Joshua Abraham Norton declared himself the Emperor of the United States and reigned in San Francisco for 21 years. Born in England in the early 1800s, Joshua Norton moved to San Francisco in 1849, where he used a $30,000 fortune made in South Africa to supply provisions for San Francisco's growing population of gold miners. Within six years, he had become a highly respected businessman and landowner. It was then, in 1855, that he hatched a bold scheme to supply San Francisco's other large population, the Chinese. He quickly cornered the market on all the rice supplies in the Bay Area. And it looked as though Joshua was on his way to another fortune, but then two unexpected ships laden with rice steamed into the bay and Norton was ruined. For the next three years, his fortune and holdings vanished in a series of court actions, and by 1858, he was broke. After his last court action, Norton disappeared for nine months. Then, in the summer of 1859, he strode into the offices of the San Francisco Bulletin and handed the editors a prepared statement. The newspapers dutifully ran the declaration on the next edition's front page. The newspaper dutifully ran the declaration on the next edition's front page. At the preparatory request of a large majority of the citizens of the United States, I, Joshua Norton, formerly of Algoa Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and now for the past nine years and ten months of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself Emperor of the U.S., and in virtue of the authority thereby in me vested, do hereby order and direct the representatives of the different states of the union to assemble in music hall of this city on the first day of february next then and there to make such alterations in the existing laws of the union as may ameliorate the evils under which the country is laboring and thereby cause confidence to exist both at home and abroad in our stability and integrity norton the first emperor of the united states september 17th 1859 Well, thus began the reign of the first and only emperor of the United States, Norton. In the years that followed, he abolished Congress, dissolved the Republic, and declared himself the protector of Mexico. He also called for a convention to purge the Bible of its false lights and promote universal religion, and he banned the Bay Area's most 
offensive F word, Frisco. It still irritates people today. The use of which was named a high misdemeanor punishable by a $25 fine to be paid to the Imperial Treasury. That's actually a really high fine for the times. Although clearly off his rocker and initially given newspaper space only for a lark, Norton was treated with great respect by many of the city. It's because he basically started most of it. A Sansom Street print shop issued treasury certificates in the Emperor's name, secured by all property of the Emperor, decreed to be accepted everywhere as of the same value as gold coin, which many local merchants accepted. He dined well and gratis at the finest restaurants in which took to putting up plaques reading by imperial appointment. However, like all empires, Norton's was not always peaceful. For a time, the Grand Hotel gave him lodging, though it eventually evicted him in a move he called rebellion. He declared, We, Norton I, do hereby command the water companies to close down on them and the gas companies to give them no light, so as to bring them to terms. Taking the joke just so far, the water and gas companies failed to comply. Embattled though he may be, the emperor looked out for his people. In 1860, during an ugly race riot against the Chinese population, Norton inadvertently inverted directly, intervened directly, I can talk really, <laughs> quieted a mob and stood between the rioters and the intended victims and recited the Lord's Prayer until they quietly dispersed. Aside from dealing with the occasional mob, the royal duties were fairly straightforward. Norton performed daily inspections of San Francisco neighborhoods, dressed in a naval uniform with a gold, with gold-plated epaulets, wearing a beaver hat decorated with a rosette and a peacock feather. Often carrying a cane or umbrella, he would examine the conditions of public property, sidewalks, cable cars, inspect police officers, and philosophize at length to whoever would listen. In 1880, Norton collapsed and died in the street on his way to a lecture. The following day, the newspapers ran front page obituaries with headlines like Le Roy Est Mortz The King is Dead. A local businessmen's club bought him a handsome rosewood casket, very expensive, and the city paid for him to be interned at the Masonic Cemetery. The funeral procession was two miles long and as many as 30,000 people paid their respects. Joshua Norton's remains have now been moved to the Green Lawn Cemetery in Coloma, but his impressive gravestone is not the only testament to this towering presence in the world of the weird. In the 14th year of his reign, he commanded the cities of San Francisco and Oakland to appropriate funds for a suspension bridge from Oakland Point via Goat Island to San Francisco. Although it opened 64 years uh, after Norton's decree, the five mile bridge stands today as a memorial to this true visionary. But how many of the 259,000 drivers that jaunt across the San Francisco Bay Bridge realize that they owe their commute to America's first and only emperor, Matt Lake? Well, that's, uh, that came out of a book uh, in the Weird USA series by Mark Sherman and Mark Moran, and this is the Califor- Weird California edition. So just to let you know, I'm going to try and post a picture from the book on the website uh, probably sometime on Friday on our page. Hello and welcome to the What in the Shorts. Tonight, for our short story, we're going to talk to you about the Beast of Exmoor. The 
The name Beast of Exmoor was coined in the spring of 1983 after a marauding predator killed a ewe belonging to Eric Lay of South Moulton, Devonshire. In the next two and a half months, Lay lost 100 of his sheep. The killer did not attack its prey at the hindquarters as would a dog fox, but instead ripped out their throats. The Beast of Exmoor is described by many people who say they have seen it as a huge jet black cat, eight feet long from nose to tail. Other witnesses, about one in five, report a tan or fawn-colored puma-like feline. In a few instances, two giant felines, one black and one tan, have been seen in each other's company. A small number of witnesses recount sightings of large animals that look like unusual dogs. Sightings of the beast go back at least to the early 1970s, but they made no impact on popular attention until the depredations occurred at the Lay Farm. In early May, Britain's Royal Marines descended on the area, and London's Daily Express offered a monetary reward of £1,000. Marine sharpshooters hid in the hills, and some even said they saw a black and powerful animal, but were unable to get a clear shot at it. The beast or beasts mostly lay low, but as soon as the soldiers were withdrawn, the attack started again. One witness, local naturalist Trevor Beer, reported that he saw a beast in the summer of 1984 while watching birds in an area where deer carcasses had been found. I saw the head and shoulders of a large animal appear out of the bushes, he wrote. It looked black and rather otter-like. A first impression I shall always remember, for the head was broad and sleek with small ears. The animal's eyes were clearly greeny-yellow. As it stared back at me, I could clearly make out the thickish neck, the powerful-looking forelegs and deep chest, and then, without a sound, it turned and moved swiftly away through the trees. That it was jet black, I was sure, and long in the body and tail. I guessed at four and a half feet in body length and about two feet at the shoulders. Beer chased it to the edge of the woods. He recalled, it ran like a greyhound, its forelegs pushing through the hind legs as they seeming to go forward in front of its round head as it raced away, then forcing back as the forelegs came forward to hit the ground together. A beautiful, very large black panther was my immediate thought. In 1988, an area farmer reported he saw a fantastic cat going at a hell of a speed. Every time it moved, you could see the light shine back across its ribs. Another time, he saw a huge cat jump a hedge 15 feet from standing with a fair-sized lamb in its mouth. Late one night in December of 1991, a rural family watched a large panther-like animal for some minutes as it prowled near their house. Several weeks earlier, the 13-year-old son had seen it or a similar animal climbing a tree. By now, a January 1992 article in London's Daily Telegraph remarked a significant number of persons who lived in the wild countryside of southwestern England allegedly had seen the beast or beasts. Theories about the beast ranged from misidentification, possibly the cats are really dogs, they said, to the paranormal. The creatures are intruders from a parallel universe, was one suggestion. The former view is the official position of the Ministry of Agriculture. Another favorite conservative explanation is that witnesses have overestimated the size of the animals, which are domestic cats gone feral. Other theorists hold that a small breeding population of pumas, let loose by persons who once kept them as pets, populates England's wild west country. 
a more extreme hypothesis advanced by de Francis, but nearly universally rejected by zoologists, holds that large felines have secretly inhabited Britain since prehistoric times. Complicating matters is the curious fact that giant cats have been reported all over the British Isles. Officially, the only recognized non-domestic feline is Felis sylvestris grampia, a small wild cat that lives in the rugged regions of northern England and Scotland. We hope you enjoyed this short. Our next short is one done by our friend Aaron Montgomery. Hey guys, it's Aaron Montgomery. Allowing me to talk about whatever I want is a dangerous thing. However, I have been um, really pulled lately to um, just follow my intuition and go with what I'm being drawn to do and stepping out of my own way. Uh, that's something I've struggled with like my entire life. But um, um, I actually have been channeling a little bit lately and have had um, really interesting uh, coincidences and experiences around the Sasquatch and Bigfoot phenomenon that uh, is kind of making the news a little bit more and uh, I'm receiving information from them and one of the things that I've been told is that um, you know we need to be fully 3D on occasions and that means just living fully in the moment and drinking in you know, the environment around us, allowing ourselves to be fully steeped in, um, you know, in the moment, in the area, in, in our environment, you know, and just, and just feeling the joy in the world around us. And, uh, you know, even if we're in a situation that is not comfortable and we don't like it, there are going to be beautiful things there. And we have to find those things and feel it and, and amplify it in order to um, bring about the, the most positive outcomes that we can for ourselves. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, he the the entity that was talking to me was telling me that he um he thinks that the you know people feel this feeling of dread uh when they show up because they are more fully realized in 3d than we are because we are so much either living in a dream or we're just not focused on what's going on or we're so worried about the future or stuck in the past which you know you know if time is a dimension then we are not fully 3d because we're you know not fully present and um and i really i really took it and ran with it recently and um and it really does change your outlook when you are so mindful like that. And um, and I think it's important in this day and age to be fully present and allowing ourselves to feel the beauty around us so that we can change our vibration in order to influence those things that are not just in a 3D reality, that are, that are in a higher reality. Um, and move into our future that way. The processing of commercial information is complete.
back to the show. Our next short is a little story about the Dover Demon. The scare began at 10.30 on the evening of April 21, 1977, as three 17-year-old boys were driving north through Dover, Massachusetts, Boston's most affluent suburb. One of them, Bill Bartlett, thought he spotted something creeping along a low wall of loose stones on the left side of the road. As the figure turned its head and stared into the headlights of the car, Bartlett said he saw two large, round, glassy, lidless eyes shining brightly like orange marbles. Its head, resting atop a thin neck, was big and watermelon-shaped, and fully as large as the rest of the body. Except for its oversized head, the creature was thin, with long spindly arms and legs, and large hands and feet. The skin was hairless and peach-colored, and appeared to have a rough, sandpaper-like texture. No more than four feet tall, it had been making its way uncertainly along the wall. Its long fingers curled around the rocks when the car lights surprised it. Neither of Bartlett's companions, whose attention was elsewhere, noticed the creature, which was visible for only a few seconds. They testified later, however, that their friend had seemed genuinely upset. When Bartlett arrived at his home, his father noticed his distraught state and heard the story from his son, who drew a sketch of what he'd seen. Around 12.30 a.m., 15-year-old John Baxter, walking home from his girlfriend's house, reportedly saw a short figure approaching him. Thinking it was a small-statured friend, he called out his name but got no response. When the figure got closer, it stopped, causing Baxter to do the same. Trying to get a better look, Baxter took one step forward and the figure scurried off to the left, running down a shallow wooded gully and up to the opposite bank. Baxter followed it down the slope, then stopped and stared across the gully. The creature, which looked like nothing he'd ever seen or heard of, stood in silhouette about 30 feet away, its feet molded around at the top of a rock a few feet from a tree. It was leaning towards the tree with the long fingers of both hands entwined around the trunk. Though he would claim not to have heard of Bartlett's report at that point, his description of it would be exactly the same. Baxter backed carefully up the slope and walked quickly away from the scene. The next night, Bartlett told his close friend Will Tainter, 18, about his experience. That night, while Tainter was driving 15-year-old Abby Brobham home, Brobham said she spotted something in the car's headlights. On the left side of the road, a hairless creature crouched on all fours, facing the car. Its body was thin and monkey-like, its head large, oblong, and devoid of nose, ears, and mouth. The facial area around the eyes was lighter, and the eyes glowed green. Robin insisted on this last detail, even after investigating informed her that Bartlett had said the eyes were orange. Tainter said he caught only a brief glimpse. The well-known anomalist, Lauren Coleman, then living in the area, learned of Bartlett's report through an acquaintance who knew the teenager. Subsequently, he, along with ufologist Walter N. Reb, Webb sorry, and Ed Fogg, interviewed Bartlett and the other witnesses, along with their parents, school officials and teachers, and police officers. They uncovered no evidence of a hoax. To the contrary, those who knew the teenagers described them as credible, though one teacher expressed some reservations about Bartlett. Coleman gave the creature the nickname Dover Demon, and the moniker has stuck both locally 
and in the literature of anomalous entities. Debunker Martin S. Kottmeyer later proposed that the witnesses saw no more than a yearling moose, blaming the confusion on darkness and the briefness of all sightings except Baxter's. Bartlett's placing of the eyes matched the placement of eyes just above the hip of the muzzle on a moose's head, he wrote. The lack of a discernible nose and mouth is easily laid to the fact that nostrils and mouth are very far down on the muzzle. A drawing of a young moose presents the ears swept back along the line of the head and would not discernibly stick out, thus accounting for the absence of visible ears. Notwithstanding a vague superficial plausibility, Kottmeyer's theory is almost certainly baseless. Pullman, who had the advantage of having investigated first-hand observes, a skinny four-foot-tall upright coming down on all fours sometimes, sandpaper-skinned, five-huge-fingered, bright-orange-eyed baby moose would be more of a wonder than the Dover demon itself, I'm afraid. Additionally, the moose would have had to be a very young one without antlers, and even a young one at 500, at 600 pounds, sorry, is too large to be a plausible candidate for the small, thin creature. Moreover, moose are rare in Massachusetts. Only two interactions between officials and the animals are recorded between 1976 and 1977, and are to be found, if at all, in the central and western parts of the state, far from the Boston-Dover area. No evidence of a moose's presence there in the time period exists. This explanation seems literally a product of a debunker's imagination. In 2006, the Boston Sunday Globe interviewed Bartlett, now an artist and family man living in a nearby community. Bartlett stated, I have no idea what it was. I definitely know I saw something. It was definitely, definitely weird. I didn't make it up. Sometimes I wish I had. Nothing like the Dover Demon has been reported since. I'm Adriana Camito, and our next What in the Short is about Patty, Tanya, Hearst, heroine, or villain. Newspaper heiress Patricia Hearst had been missing for two months when police noticed something strange in surveillance pictures of a recent holdup at the Hibernia Bank in San Francisco. The victim of their number one kidnapping case was standing near a wall brandishing a military-issue rifle as three other women and a man cleaned the bank out of $10,000. When the pictures hit the newspaper, the whole nation was stunned. Had this child of privilege suddenly taken up with a gang of an anarchist hoods? Some say. Some may say that the kidnapping of Hearst from her expensive apartment on February 14, 1974, was a kind of karmic retribution for the yellow journalism churned out by Patty's grandfather, William Randolph. The self-stylized Simonese Liberation Army, SLA, certainly saw it that way. To them, Patricia Hearst was the perfect target, and their plan succeeded beyond their wildest dreams when she apparently became a willing participant in, the rev in their revolution. She was 19 years old. The SLA was founded by mostly middle-class whites in the Berkeley area in, the 19 in 1971. 
when Donald DeFreeze escaped from Vacaville State Prison in 1973 and forcibly took over the organization, DeFreeze pushed the SLA into a violent phase. The Hearst kidnapping was one step in a string of destabilizing acts that he planned to carry out. DeFreeze, who had taken the revolutionary name Sinek Matume, made a decision to bring down Patty's father, whom he regarded as the man. Using one of his own innocent daughters, they hustled Patty into a nondescript apartment in San Francisco and locked her in a tiny hallway closet for two months. While in captivity, she was subject, subjected to continual abuse, attacks, and a lack of privacy even in the bathroom, all the while to freeze and others programmed her with the philosophy of the SLA. When she had been sufficiently trained, her captors decided to test her loyalty with the bank job. She not only cooperated, she even observed to smile at DeFreeze as they left the scene. Hearst later complained that the others were pointing their guns at her during the job. While on the lam, Hearst made periodic statements denouncing the establishment and her parents and declaring herself a soldier of the People's Army. She now called herself Tiana after Che Guevara's girlfriend. Only a month after the robbery on May 16th, Hearst was in Los Angeles sitting in a getaway van while two other SLA members shoplifted items from Mel's Sporting Goods store in Inglewood. When they were observed and ran out of the building, Hearst fired several warning shots that barely missed the store owner and several bystanders. Ditching the van and stealing several cars, the three fugitives hightailed it to a hotel near Disneyland. Meanwhile, back at the safe house, the other SLA members heard about the bot shoplifting and hastily moved out. They drove around a while and finally took over another house simply because it was the only one with lights on at 4 a.m. On an anonymous tip, 400 police officers and SWAT team members converged on the residence the next afternoon. Occupants of 1466 East 54th Street this is the Los Angeles Police Department speaking. Come out with your hands up. They bellowed through a bullhorn. A child and an older man walked out. After more attempts to get the occupants to leave, tear gas canisters were thrown in. Gunshots, gunshots erupted from within and the cops returned fire. A four-hour siege ensued, which several other non-SLA members emerged from the house safe, but just barely. When it was over, the residence was in flames, burning in a fire started by the tear gas. Six SLA members were dead. DeFreeze was later found to have shot himself. Amazingly, no spectators or other neighborhood residents were killed or even hurt. Millions watched the drama live on television, including the last SLA soldiers in Los Angeles. Hearst and her husband, Hearst and husband and wife, Emily and Bill Harris. Hearst and the Harrises released a record, recorded statement condemning the police and went back to San Francisco where they robbed another bank in April. An elderly woman depositing church funds was killed in the holdup. Emily Harris later said, it doesn't really matter. She was a bourgeois pig anyway. All of the gang, including Hearst, were caught and arrested the next month. At the booking, when asked her occupation, she repli replied, urban gorilla. The Hearst family hired flamboyant attorney F. Lee Bailey 
to defend their daughter, but Bailey submitted a weak defense, apparently wasn't very good, which the jury didn't buy despite expert witnesses who testified that Patricia Hurst was the victim of skillful brainwashing. In March 1976, she was sentenced to seven years in jail, but President Jimmy Carter commuted the term barely two years later under... Further pressure from Carter, Hearst was issued a full presidential pardon by Bill Clinton in January 20, 2001. After marrying her bodyguard and settling down to raise a family in Connecticut, she appeared in five John Waters films and used the publicity and experience to begin a new life as an actress, only in America. Yeah, speaking of John Waters, I absolutely love his movies. They're twisted and sick, but worth a watch, just not with small children. And I hope, I hope you enjoy that short. We hope you enjoyed our shorts tonight. Like I said, we didn't have much, but we wanted to leave you guys with something. And I'm going to be posting one of those pictures later. We'll try and actually post pictures for all of our shorts tonight. So if you haven't seen them before, you know exactly what we're talking about. Anyway. Also, please get it. If you get a chance to rate us and have it, please do. Go to Apple Podcast or go to Apple and rate us. Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever format you're currently using. And uh, we take suggestions. We have some interesting stuff coming up. We actually did get a new rating and a suggestion, which is not with me at the moment. So I'll see if I can get that and maybe we can put it on for next week's episode. Um, as per usual, I wanted to talk about how you can contact us as well and our current contest that is still running. You want to tell everybody about that one, dear? Our creative folks out there that listen, um, even the ones that aren't so creative, please. We're doing a contest to redo our our mascot logo, and the winner gets a... Their, what is our mascot? Dollface. And the, minute, dollface. the, and the uh, winner gets their Dollface logo that they created on a t-shirt. And you and get that free as a prize. Yeah, we're going to buy you something. pay for it or anything. We will buy it for you. And get it sent to you. If you're out of our area, we will do our best to get it to you. That's right. Uh, just need to know sizing and whatnot. And uh, but you, we can't, you can't win unless you enter. And that means you have to come up with the Dollface logo. The only entrance we have so far is by our friend Craig. Um, you've heard of many times on this show yeah, by now. Heard, you've heard of many times. He actually sent us a really funny one and included Dollface and his own face in the image. We loved it. I thought it was great. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, I enjoyed it. <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, I know we have artistic types that listen. Uh, please, enter. I'd love to see your, your take on our mascot. Add yourself, do seasonal ones, do goofy and tongue-in-cheek stuff. We totally love it. Even if it's not PG, we can blur it out for the masses. <laughs> There's that too. We yeah. don't mind. We'd love to see it. We're all adults here who are judging. So, hey. <laughs> so, where do they send that to? Do you remember? Uh, our email at... It's what in the podcast at gmail.com. You'll remember it one day. Yeah, one, one day. <laughs> or you could. Or, or, was that the only. That's, that's where we're sending it. That's where the entries are being submitted to. Um, you can also post them if you like at the Facebook group, the What in the Podcast Facebook group. But official entries will be done through the email. Oh, and you can reach us through our email if you have comments, questions, or suggestions. Mm -hmm. Or the group. Or, or the group. Or our individual people as individuals on facebook or you can yeah tell them since tracy's not since here tracy's not here <laughs> there is a little spot in the description 
of the podcast you're listening to. Of each right of now, the episodes. Of each episode. And you click on it and you give them your email. You get one email from them. The links the link says send a voicemail message. You click that you link. Send, yeah, and you don't have to send it to us until you're perfectly happy with it. Yep, just record the message. You don't like it, re-record it. Also, if you don't want it to be sent on or you have to let us know. Let us know if you don't want it aired. We'll, we'll air we'll air you. If you talk to us, we'll air you unless you tell us you don't want to. We have some friends who don't like to be recorded. So we completely understand and try and uh, accommodate them. Yeah. Accommodate. Anyway, I think that's going to pretty much cover it tonight. Yeah, I think it does. I keep tripping over my own tongue tonight. So. For, for a bunch of shorts and, and just us talking, it's actually taken a lot longer than I planned on it. Almost a full episode now, huh? Oh, it's taken hours just to get this far, just for <laughs> just for this little Let's short see, bit. We've had uh, ambulance sirens. Ambulance sirens, barking dogs barking. Dogs, our racing own, cats. Oh yeah, our own KCAT 500. <laughs> just unending noise and just doing our best just to just to get above it all and get all that out of the out of the show so you can hear us for what it's worth (laughs) anyway you got anything else tonight no i think you've covered it and i've covered it and we've talked too much tonight so let's give the folks a break yep we're just gonna stop talking right now have a good night and stay spooky Nah.